This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I was thinking about my own experience with, with global health, um, and uh, everybody has an anecdote or two, I suppose, but I was on a 30-day walk through the Indian Himalayas, and... Uh, on the Indian side, and, and on the 29th day, I stepped over a wall onto a wild dog, and he put a, took a chunk out of my leg. Um, he didn't like being stepped on, I suppose, and, and then ran off. Uh, that's an area of the world where rabies is endemic, so there I was, uh, and I needed to start figuring out how to, how to begin the vaccination uh, process for rabies. And I was in a little place, kind of isolated, um, it was occupied at the time by the Indian Army. Uh, they had actually declared martial law in this area, so this was very handy for me because they travel with, with vaccine. Uh, so I began the, the procedure there, and, you know, you get several shots over 10 days or so, and um, I actually got one of my shots. Uh, I was in a little store owned by a rug merchant, and I asked him, I said, I need to get my third rabies shot in the series. Can you tell me where to go? Can you help me? And he goes, oh, my brother-in-law, He's, he can do it. <laughs> so he sat me down in the room where the really expensive rugs were and gave me some tea. Uh, and about 20 minutes later, up, up bicycled his brother-in-law uh, and in a lunchbox, he was carrying a hypodermic and it looked like the right kind of uh, material, uh, and proceeded to give me an injection, and I proceeded to buy a rug. So that was my experience with global health. You're going to have quite a day here today. You are hearing from individuals who put a face on what the University of California does in the global health space from individual to panel presentations, poster presentations, videos. But uh, before we complete the day, or before we get even further, I'd like to tell another story. Uh, how many of you remember the year 1981? Okay. How many of you were not alive in 1981? <laughs> Just checking. The year 1981 was actually a big year for global health. It was also a big year for the University of California. That year, there was a doctor at UCLA who was studying and observing a puzzling new disease. That doctor's name was Michael Gottlieb. And in 1981, he became the first person in the world to identify AIDS. Now, that discovery was remarkable, but that discovery was enabled by the efforts of many other people. First, there was a critical mass of academic researchers. There were clinical specialists. Um, and at the same time, there was state-of-the-art, or what was then state-of-the-art medical technology that a university medical center can provide. Now, the University of California still makes breakthroughs in the field of AIDS and the related, as we know, the virus, HIV. For the last three decades, researchers at this university have blazed a trail 
for how we understand and treat HIV AIDS. And when I talk about researchers under the umbrella of UC, I don't just mean those in California. I'm talking globally. So today, the head of China's HIV AIDS program is a doctor named Dr. Sunju Wu. He is a global health expert, and he's a UCLA graduate. So he's a Bruin. Any Bruins here? All right, work with me here. UC Global Health Day gives us an opportunity to celebrate the past and present successes of physicians like Dr. Gottlieb and graduates like Dr. Wu. It gives us the opportunity to learn from one another and to draw inspiration for future efforts. This fall will mark the five-year anniversary of the University of California Global Health Institute. And I want to just say a word of congratulations to all of you who have helped make the University of California a leader in global health research and education. Um, and uh, in particular, let us thank Dr. Hailey DeBoss and Professor Tom Coates for having the vision to create this institute and the unrelenting determination to carry that vision forward. Um, and I already have some ideas gleaned just from a few moments here this morning of interactions I can have as a university president and somebody who has been involved in law and public policy on how some of our institutions uh, need to perhaps reframe how they view research, but also how they review and look at the impact of research and how that translation occurs. So as advocate in chief for the University of California, uh, let me boil down my vision to two phrases. We teach for California and we research for the world. We teach for California, we research for the world. And this institute and this day is a great example of that dual mission. In this audience, we have faculty, we have researchers, and there are students here from all 10 UC campuses and from many diverse disciplines. You represent the health sciences, the social sciences, economics, public policy, agriculture, and environmental sciences. This is a powerful collaboration in and of itself to have you all in one room at one time. Your training, uh, those of you who are faculty are helping train, and those of you who are students are learning to become the global health leaders of tomorrow. You need and need to work together to solve these most complex and urgent problems, uh, problems that are systemic, endemic, and extraordinarily difficult uh, to go from identification to the process of cure, what clinically needs to be done, to translation, well, how do you do that across a very complex world in very disparate cultures and histories and economics and societies and politics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you've got to get it right. 
You know, you've got to figure this out. And you should have a sense of urgency about this because the world keeps changing. New diseases keep occurring um, and uh, people are dying. So there should be, as we collaborate, as you collaborate, a sense of let's, let's get going. Uh, let's move. We're doing that. We need to say, okay, how we can do even more. This is exactly what the University of California was created to do. We have a long history of addressing the world's most pressing issues, whether it's climate change, food, or the California drought. The university needs to step up with collaborative and science-based solutions and then a willingness to figure out how to apply them. Uh, that is what the role of a world-class public research university is. That is where we are at the University of California. Um, we have brilliant thinkers and innovators, many of them in this room today. And by the way, amongst you who are students, you are brilliant thinkers and innovators. And you need to be thinking of yourself that way. You are attracted to the university or were attracted to the university because of some belief in you that you could get not only a world-class education here, but maybe an opportunity to help transform the world, to, to, to create change that makes a difference. You know, there's a, a, a YouTube video by a, a comedian named Taylor Molly. Um, uh, and he's talking about teachers. Uh, and uh, he's comparing the salaries that teachers make uh, to the salaries that uh, others might make. Um, and he says, and the point of the whole uh, YouTube video is, it's not what you make. It's whether you make a difference. It's not what you make. It's whether you make a difference. Global health makes a difference. So we need to have lofty goals, and we need to have some sense of collective urgency about them. Um, this is going on all through the UC, and that's one of the delights of my job, because I get to, to see it all. Um, the Center for Brain Mapping Activity at San Diego, the green technology research uh, taking uh, place right here in places like the West Village, which is a reflection of multidisciplinary teamwork. I got to spend the night there once. Um, these are all quests for science-based basic knowledge that has huge public policy implications. And as I've said, there is no entity in the world as well positioned to take on these endeavors as our university. Uh, global health, a key part of our collective vision. Now, um, the mission that is shared in this room to bring health, safety, and stability to the populations of a planet is uh, a fabulous one. Um, global health, um, however, doesn't necessarily begin beyond the borders of California. Uh, we need to also look at building healthier communities right here in this state. Uh, you know, right now in East Los Angeles, uh, an area called Boyle Heights. Uh, the UCLA School of Public Health is working um, to transform corner markets uh, to sell fresh fruits, vegetables, healthy snacks, 
Um, and they're now getting uh, support, research support, for those transformative efforts. They've involved local high school students. Uh, their charge is to promote healthy eating among friends, neighbors, and family members. Uh, they earn school credit for taking a year-long course in nutrition and marketing. You're not going to get high school kids to change their behaviors unless you put some incentives in there. Um, so you've got to be creative in thinking about what are the incentives that change behavior. And that applies to high school students and university students and those who are uh, uh, in the globe uh, around, our, our, around our planet. Um, there are models for academic, other models for uh, spurring uh, community involvement um, and community participation in their own health. So global health has so many aspects to it that it's almost too many to name. So I thought you, you got such a great presentation uh, this morning about all of the disciplines involved and how they can work interactively to affect change and do so on a real-time basis. You know, another great example of this, by the way, is at UC Davis at the Telehealth Center. I saw that, too. It is providing adult and pediatric care uh, throughout California. It has helped reduce medication errors in pediatric emergency cases by a lot. Um, rural doctors often don't have pediatric specialty training. Uh, many times, if they're not a pediatrician, they may not have a lot of experience in treating seriously ill children. And they also lack access to resources, resources like electronic medical records, computerized prescription systems, 24-hour pharmacist coverage, and so on and so on. So when a pediatric special at UC Davis is right there, literally, virtually, uh, in the room with the child, with the rural physician, with the nurses, with the parents, uh, via a telehealth system, um, care uh, goes up and errors go down. This isn't a magic wand for healthcare. But it is an important tool for improving, uh, improving health care access. And it has many applications on a global scale. Um, so today, um, you will hear some other presentations on the use of mobile technology to provide training and specialty consultations in remote regions. So we teach for California. We research for the world. And our research for the world can begin in California and have uh, large implications globally. Um, this is a field, global health, that is uh, mined with challenges. Um, in developing countries, uh, you know, access is a big issue. Cultural issues can be a big issue. Basic is basics like clean water, food, reliable sources of electricity. If you have to keep something refrigerated all the time and you don't have a steady source of power, that's a problem. That's a problem. So you've got to be able to figure that out. Uh, and maybe it's taking a couple of shipping containers and putting them up in the jungle someplace and putting it with a generator to make sure that you can do that, right? Right. So... That's one set of problems. And then you have another set of issues, and you're going to confront this because many of you will, at some point in your life, seek funding. And you'll seek federal funding. And you'll seek funding from international and local agencies and 
private nonprofits. Um, we need to educate them better about the work that we do and how it's actually done to attract even more funding to our efforts. That's something um, that uh, a university president can help with. Um, but uh, we also need to be thinking about uh, overall a new sustainable funding model and how we prioritize the resources we already have throughout the, re throughout the entire university. That's also something uh, that we need to uh, be looking at and are in the office of the president. Uh, you know, uh, we talk a lot about communicable disease. Um, we need to talk about conditions, heart disease, lung disease, diabetes. Um, they're actually, uh, numbers-wise, threatening to surpass communicable disease in terms of uh, health impacts, certainly in the United States. Drug resistance, the global health workforce shortage, the issue of having to train a lot of people so you don't have boxes of equipment just sitting on the ground, dropped there by some you know, well-meaning uh, nonprofit group that raised a lot of money. They had a dinner. They did this and this. You know, a microscope in a box doesn't do anybody any good. You've got to have the way to, to use it, people trained to, to work it, other people who can maintain it, spare parts when it breaks down. So it is sustainable uh, once, uh, uh, once uh, a particular person leaves. Um, these are uh, all issues implicated in what we are talking about here today, global health, where we teach for California and research for the world. So uh, we have lots of challenges. Big issues have lots of challenges. That's one of the reasons they're big issues. Um, but we're, we're on the case. Um, we have uh, mustered and collected resources. I think we can look even more about what we do collaboratively. Um, and uh, I'm proud to say that at the university, we pick big issues to work on as an institution. Ten campuses, you know, quarter of a million students, uh, you know, uh, five health centers, three national laboratories. Uh, it's an amazing, amazing system. It should be working on big issues. You should be working on big issues, and I'm glad you are. So it's my pleasure to share uh, this day with you and to thank you both for many of you, the work you've already done, but particularly for the students in this audience, the students in this audience, for the, for the life work you intend to do. Thank you. Thank you, President Napolitano. Um, my name's Mark Schenker. I'm the co-chair of uh, this glorious event today and the Associate Vice Provost for Outreach and Engagement at UC Davis and Professor of Public Health Sciences and Medicine. And before I introduce our next speaker, I just want to pick up on a theme that has just been resonating with me and all the speakers. When I hear the president of our university talk about the impact of our work, that speaks to outreach and engagement. One of our core missions of the university 
is not just the generation of knowledge and the transmission of knowledge, but the application, the engagement, the academic application, and not only the president, but the chancellor, the plenary speakers. I think everyone has been resonating with this idea that we want to make a difference. We want to apply this to improve global health, reduce health disparities, uh, to make a difference. And so I'm just delighted to be here in, in, in my role as Associate Vice Provost for Outreach and Engagement and to hear that such a prominent theme uh, in this meeting. And uh, I hope that is reaching all the students here who are getting some tools and getting energized to go out and actually make a difference. So uh, on to our uh, next plenary speaker. It's really a pleasure for me to introduce Dr. Jonathan Samet. Um, I've known Jonathan since we trained together at the Channing Laboratory of Harvard University over three decades ago. Um, and uh, interestingly, both of us uh, took our pulmonary medicine and epidemiology training and became global health people, so uh, interesting career paths. Um, Dr. Samet is the Distinguished Professor and Flora Thornton Chair for the Department of Preventive Medicine at the Keck School of Medicine, University of Southern California, and he's Director of the USC Institute for Global Health. He received his bachelor's degree from Harvard College and his MD from the University of Rochester School of Medicine and Dentistry and has a master's in epidemiology from the Harvard School of Public Health. Uh, in his career, uh, John has investigated diverse health issues using epidemiologic approaches. Uh, he's focused on health risks of inhaled pollutants, particles, ozone, indoor pollutants, secondhand smoke, radon. Um, and he's also looked at the causes and occurrence of cancer and respiratory disease, uh, emphasizing various risk factors going into this. But importantly, uh, as I look at his work and getting back to my theme, John has carried his research beyond the laboratory to translating those findings into policies that will have an impact on reducing the global burden of disease. Uh, he served on numerous committees concerned with using scientific evidence for developing policies to protect and improve public health. And so I'm delighted that he carries, again, this theme that uh, I've been talking about. Uh, Dr. Samus received numerous honors and awards for his work. He was elected to the Institute of Medicine from the National Academy of Science in 1997. Uh, he received the Prince Maidal Award for Global Health from the King of Thailand, the Public Service Award and the Edward Livingston Trudeau uh, Medal of the American Thoracic Society, the WHO World No Tobacco Day Award, and others that I would uh, be unfair in taking time away from his talk to list. So it's a great pleasure to uh, introduce and welcome uh, John Samet, who's going to come and speak to us. Well, uh, thank you uh, very much, uh, Mark. Uh, President Napolitano, uh, Chancellor Katehi, uh, friends, uh, colleagues, I'm delighted and to be here and honored for the invitation. Uh, President Napolitano, I have to tell you that Mark foreshortened my story. I spent 18 years at UNM, 
And when I hear the name Napolitano, I think of your dad, Len, the dean. So um, we had uh, many interactions, and I will say sometimes he was a friend and sometimes he was the dean. Uh, uh, let me ask, uh, how many of you are students? And how many of you are anticipating careers in global health, medicine, and still deciding? Should be many. Well, I'm changing what we're talking about to the slow epidemics, the non-communicable disease uh, epidemics uh, that are rising. And I'm going to talk about uh, the parallels between what we have done to identify the problem of tobacco and now the rising problem of non-communicable diseases and talk about the uh, connection. So the first part, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the story of tobacco. It's such a long one that I, I have to abbreviate it. And I want to touch on some of the highlights that relate to the general rise of non-communicable uh, diseases. I want to turn to that and talk about some of the lessons learned. And I think the challenge is that anyone who is in medicine and health for the decades to come uh, will face. I want to apologize to all my friends for whom I'm not talking about your favorite topics, perhaps immigration and health uh, or climate change, but there's just not room for everything in a half hour. Now, there's a focus uh, now on the uh, four major chronic diseases, in part crystallized with the high-level summit at the UN in 2011, the second to address a health issue with another one looming on this same topic. A focus on four, cancer cardiovascular disease, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, the kind of crippling disease that smokers get, or perhaps people exposed to fumes or biomass smoke uh, in their homes, and then, of course, uh, diabetes and the metabolic disease, and a focus on four risk factors, unhealthy diet, harmful use of alcohol, tobacco use, and physical uh, inactivity. And if we could address those, we could begin to make a major dent in these rising uh, epidemics. These choices were appropriate. This is the uh, list of the top uh, causes of disease coming from the Global Burden of Disease Project at the University of Washington. And without going through all the details, if you begin to look across the causes, here's tobacco, here's alcohol, here's diet, and diet runs down, here's high body mass index, weighing too much, physical activity. So as we look at the causes of disability, those four risk factors identified on the slide I showed you about the UN conference encompass much of the disease uh, burden. So if we're going to reduce that burden, we have three things we need to do, what we always do in health. We find causes and try and reverse them. We screen, which works for some things in some places, and we treat. And as we've heard already from our students, treatment may not be available. So there's a challenge. What we do in the United States cannot be generalized, nor is it happening uh, everywhere. I'm going to give emphasis to what I call the real causes of disease, the upstream causes. And for the non-communicable diseases, we can look upstream. Sometimes we see governments. Sometimes we see corporations. Uh, sometimes we see socioeconomic factors. 
And it's these causes that cause exposures that may harm us, tobacco, for example, and disease. Right now, of course, in the modern era, we're focused on uh, genomics, but we don't need to worry about the genomics of susceptibility to tobacco if we could deal with tobacco itself. So this is important. This is our future of predictive medicine uh, in part, but I'm going to turn back to this model uh, throughout uh, my discussion. Corporations exist to make money. And just to give you one example, this is Philip Morris International, created with the breakup of uh, Philip Morris into Altria and Philip Morris International. This is the stock at its beginning. This is the stock as of about a week ago, a few days ago. Not a bad investment, uh, and it's done its job. And of course, that is the uh, job of corporations, which globally have an extraordinary impact on the health of the planet. So let's turn to uh, tobacco. And probably many of you know a great deal about tobacco, so it's an easy and good starting point for us to hang on to. Now, this is the 20th century and a tiny bit of the 21st and tobacco consumption. So at its peak, tobacco consumption in the United States reached over 4,000 cigarettes per year per person, per adult. That's 200 packs, 200 packs per year per person. That's smokers and non-smokers together. So there's a tremendous amount of tobacco being consumed. And we'll talk about how that happened and how perhaps we were able to bring this extraordinary level of consumption down. In California, we're down to 11% daily smoking, a, a, tremendous, uh, a tremendous advance from where we were. Now, let's talk about the diseases in the United States. So you heard about the drama of infectious disease outbreaks. HIV AIDS, 1981, uh, Michael Gottlieb identifying the first, uh, the first cases. But here's the picture of the slow diseases, death in the United States from various cancers, including lung cancer, cardiovascular disease, and here's infectious disease. And you can see that at the start of the 20th century, Infectious disease was the leading cause. Tuberculosis was the leading cause. This year in the United States, we'll have less than 10,000 new cases of tuberculosis. A large proportion of them will be in immigrants. The power of infectious disease, 1918, the flu epidemic. You can see why we worry about having another one. The dramatic decline in cardiovascular disease, a triumph of public health and treatment. And here's the imprint of smoking, rise of cancer of the lung in men, the rise in women, and here's the beginnings of success, a decline for 20 years now in the rate of lung cancer in men. And then mysteries, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease continues to rise, the disease that smokers get. So here are the slow epidemics. And part of the problem is that they are slow. So it wasn't until 1950, after a half century of every cigarette use, that the epidemic of lung cancer in men 
was recognized. So we have this challenge of watching carefully enough to make certain that these epidemics are not happening or to find out when they are. I worked for the last four years as a senior scientific editor for the 50th anniversary report of the Surgeon General. This is uh, Boris Lushniak, the uh, interim Surgeon General, presenting the uh, report uh, in January at the 50th uh, anniversary. He uh, compellingly read the major conclusions after each one saying enough is enough, which is in fact the case. I think in this case of tobacco, we can all agree that enough is enough. Massive amounts of scientific evidence. The first report, our 900-page uh, new report with 500 pages of tables and figures. Available as a free ebook, by the way. <laughs> now, I just want to highlight a couple of the conclusions. So here's the first. The century-long epidemic has caused an enormous avoidable, I can't see that one, uh, public health tragedy. More than 20 million premature deaths can be attributed to cigarette smoking. Now, what we don't want to do is keep writing sentences like that, saying that they're deaths that could have been avoided. We want to be upfront, anticipatory, and making certain that as these epidemics emerge, we are doing something about them. We want to identify them at the causal point and not at the point where the epidemic is in full bore. That is too uh, late. And then the second conclusion, an obvious one, but important for it to be stated. Tobacco epidemic initiated and then sustained by the aggressive strategies of the tobacco industry, which has deliberately misled the public on the risks of uh, smoking uh, cigarettes. Here is the uh, release of the report, uh, Secretary uh, Sibelius, uh, Boris Lushniak, and then Tom Frieden, uh, CDC director, all committed to controlling tobacco. And I just want to make a few points that about the commitment to the future, to the next 50 years, to use everything we have, and the department was committed to that, and to aim for the end of combustible products, cigarettes, pipes, cigars, and strategizing towards an end game in which there are smoke-free uh, generations. And that was the commitment that uh, Secretary Sibelius uh, enunciated. So let's go back and uh, talk now about this century and see what we can learn. Early efforts to control came on moral grounds, part of the temperance movement, going back before we knew about the dangers, although some uh, anticipated them. Evidence of harm, the 1950s, the first major epidemiological studies supporting toxicological evidence showing the dangers of smoking. You might ask why everybody didn't just quit when they heard it was bad. Here's an easy lesson, it was addicting, uh, and it was marketed and promoted in a way that sustained it. 1964, the Surgeon General's report, a model for evidence-based review as a foundation for public policy. Anti-smoking uh, ads on TV under the Fairness Doctrine, which left when smoking ads were banned on television. What's advertised on TV now? 
e-cigarettes. E-cigarettes, isn't that incredible? For those of us who saw the disappearance of cigarette ads, we may be imprinted by seeing them as children, but now there's e-cigarette ads. And then, this is important, this is pack warnings, okay? A little bit effective. And then general education helps, but not enough. And then, importantly, uh, nicotine replacement therapy, drugs, clean indoor air, and somehow skipped in my rapidity with the button here was light and low-tar cigarettes. And that uh, is important. And now moving on to comprehensive campaigns, putting everything we need into this. FDA has recently launched a major campaign. Uh, CDC has had several of their so-called TIPS uh, campaigns. So we've made progress, and now we have the Family Smoking Prevention Tobacco Control Act, a regulatory uh, approach. So we've made progress, and you can see the progress charted, charted here. Now, the real cause, upstream sits the tobacco industry, marketing its products aggressively and successfully for a long time. Here's our genes, probably not so uh, important, but of great scientific interest. So what has happened over the same span with the industry? And what can we learn here? A success of marketing, the uh, epidemic just has to be set right with an addicting product and the evolution of modern advertising and marketing going hand in hand with the tobacco industry's success. Marketing to women. You may not have known that Marlboro began as a woman's cigarette, marketed with the aura of women's rights, that women had a right to smoke, and in a society that was male-dominated, women should assume that right, and tied to the suffragette movement. Clever uh, advertising, as always. Creating doubt about the science. Okay, those public health people are saying smoking causes cancer. It's bad science. It's not sound science. And these are words, for those of you who have been in Washington, may uh, echo. In 1954, this statement saying that their products are not injurious and that they will cooperate with the public health authorities. And their documents show from that point forward there was a campaign of collusion and fraud, lawyer-driven, that was much of the basis for their being found guilty in the case of Department of Justice versus Philip Morris uh, et al. in a 1,700-page uh, decision by Gladys Kessler. The light, low-tar story. Cigarettes are bad. Let's make them a little lighter. Let's say that we can filter out the bad stuff. And as it turned out, we were misled. The public was misled. Light and low-tar, the implicit uh, health claim, was not a reality and, again, was part of the federal lawsuit. As we began to deal with the secondhand smoke problem, uh, work that uh, Mark was involved in, I was involved in, many were involved in, the uh, tobacco industry mounted an extraordinarily aggressive campaign against the science. Uh, that was played out at OSHA. That was played out at EPA. That was played out at the local level and the state level, but the uh, science held out. And I think the clean indoor air movement has been norm-changing. Uh, I testified in 1987 before, before the House 
Subcommittee on Aviation on the in-flight smoking ban, people said it was not possible, that no one would obey, that pilots would not be able to fly planes. Guess what? Planes are smoke-free, and if you smoke on a plane, it's not good. <laughs> Turning to the low- and middle-income countries, new markets. The market declines in Europe. The market declines in the United States. What is done? Find another market. Find the world's non-smokers, who by no means need to smoke, and sell the product uh, there. And we'll come back to that. And then new products, products like uh, e-cigarettes, uh, dissolvables, and others that the uh, industry has brought out. In case you're not aware of the e-cigarette story, uh, you should be. FDA just released its draft uh, deeming regulations that are the means by which it will assert jurisdiction over e-cigarettes. A misnomer, since there is no tobacco in an e-cigarette. It's a device that delivers a, an aerosol containing nicotine, or could be without nicotine. But just to show you the history repeating itself, this might be an ad directed at women, unless I'm wrong. Uh, and it might be uh, bringing an Im image of uh, thinness, uh, perhaps, or targeted marketing at particular racial and ethnic groups. And again, menthol marketing to African Americans is looked at as one of the successes of uh, the advertising uh, industry. Sex, of course, um, always uh, there. And in case you're not certain about one reason to have e-cigarettes, here it is. Okay, so change the norm back from the 20 or 25 years of progress we've made on denormalizing uh, smoking. And then, of course, using Twitter, I guess along with the dean of the vet school here, uh, knowing that this is a way to uh, reach out uh, to the world and to the, uh, and to the market. The international turn is one that in part drew me into the global health scene. I began working in China 20 uh, years ago, and here is the cowboy, and that says, speak Chinese. 300 million smokers, that's a lot, and a potentially very large market. And when we look at the tobacco industry, there are very few players globally. The largest China national tobacco, the state monopoly, then Philip Morris International, Japan Tobacco, still majority owned by the J Japanese government, British American Imperial, and so on. And as you can see, extraordinary amounts of profit uh, to be made. So this turn overseas is not uh, surprising. It speaks of the globalization of factors that influence uh, health. Now, interesting things are happening. I'm only going to show you one uh, example. Uruguay has a law that for each brand there can only be a single representation. So this is a Marlboro in Uruguay. This is Marlboro here and elsewhere, brand after brand after brand. Uruguay has been, uh, had claim made against it by Philip Morris over this single representation through trade um, agreements. And some of the battle now around tobacco is playing out in trade areas. Australia with its plain packaging uh, and intellectual claims, uh, plus 
complaints through the WTO. So the landscape has uh, evolved, and it's a global one. So what happens in Uruguay with perhaps a few hundred thousand Marlboro smokers is important enough to the tobacco industry because of its global implications and reach. So when we look at the uh, tobacco epidemic, and again, a useful schema for thinking about the non-communicable diseases in general, the idea has been that there are stages. You might think of this as the last century in the United States, the rise of tobacco uh, use, and then the fall. And a goal is to catch those countries that are in the earliest stages of the epidemic and try and help them to end it before the inevitable happens, which will be heart disease, lung disease, and uh, so on. When we look globally, uh, data collected uh, by uh, WHO, CDC, and partnering countries, there are many countries with different patterns of smoking. Russia with extraordinary rates of smoking in men, and then places like China, where only 4% of the women smoke, a pattern that's held for the last 30 years. Stage one, protection. Russia, actually making some progress. Stage two, three, needs help. Poland, very high rates. So these data point to the global uh, needs and reflect our need to track risk factors, the risk factors I'm going to talk about in general for uh, non-communicable diseases. The importance of networking, Global Link, an early network that brought the global tobacco control community uh, together. Uh, my colleague Heather Whipfley and others showing the power of this network in crea creating a global tobacco control uh, movement. A WHO treaty, a first, the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, in force for 10 years now, or heading for, no, eight years, uh, an important parallel that may be useful for addressing other global risk factors for disease. Mike Bloomberg and Bill Gates, who together have put up approximately $650 million to support global tobacco control, supplying some resources in the face of the extraordinary capabilities of the tobacco uh, industry. And a global strategy for control from WHO, the so-called Empower Program. So let's turn now to the other uh, epidemics of non-communicable disease. I was, took this picture in China a couple of years ago. I couldn't uh, resist because it so well captures two of the problems uh, that we face. And unfortunately, these risk factors often travel together. And so people may not, they don't just smoke, maybe overweight, and they're interconnected and there are overlaps that uh, challenges. So let's turn to the NCDs, and I want to show you why we have to worry. So 1990, 1% of total deaths, okay, and it's a heat map, so the redder the hotter, the redder the more. 1990, 2010, okay, 1990, keep your eyes focused, for example, 2010, 20 years a major shift in the causes of disease and the contribution of non-communicable uh, diseases. Uh, change in the percentage of disability-adjusted life years lost. I'm not explaining it. You either know it 
Well, I'm not telling you. Uh, and again, you can see where the change has gone on. Okay, and it's in the world, the low and middle income countries of the world where there's been this tremendous shift. So the triumph of controlling infectious diseases, reducing childhood mortality and morbidity, tremendous gains in childhood life expectancy. Of course people have to die, and they're always going to die of something. They'll always be a leading cause of death. But we all want to live as long as possible. And this picture reflects something, and again, that we wish had not happened. And then the question would be, how do we keep this map from looking worse in 10 years or 20 years? Uh, and again, just a little bit more now as you look at this pattern of overall leading causes of death around the world, except for sub-Saharan Africa being largely the non-communicable uh, diseases. Cervical cancer, um, which you heard about in one of the videos, is a tragedy. In the United States, if there's a death from cervical cancer, it's a system's failure. Somebody did not get vaccinated. Somebody did not get screened. Adequate medical care was not available. Cervical cancer remains, you might notice, very prominent in many parts of the world. And here, it's, I can't blame a corporation for this, but there are opportunities for prevention and the need for the systematic approaches that will end this. And we could say the same, of course, for liver cancer from hepatitis uh, B virus and uh, aflatoxin, potentials for prevention through other means. So when we think about real causes, our rising uh, obesity epidemic with its metabolic consequences, uh, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, we can look upstream and think about the food industry, the availability of good foods, the role of our governments, the economics of the food industry, uh, and education, what we all know and what we do, uh, and downstream, inactivity, poor diet, cheap calories, and of course, we know the consequences. And again, fascinating work going on here, possibilities for prevention and targeting, but upstream some causes we can do something uh, about. The food industry, of course, is globalized or parts of it, and I don't need to describe the global penetrance of uh, many uh, industries that bring cheap calories. There are five cokeless countries in the world, and those of you who have been to Africa, who's been to Africa? So what do you see everywhere? In the, in the rural areas, PepsiCo dis distribution centers and Coca-Cola distribution centers, right? They've mastered delivery. They've mastered the whole supply chain to get Coca-Cola and Pepsi everywhere. So it is everywhere. Light, low. We see some things repeating themselves. I'm sure if you looked at light mayonnaise, it has 60% less than whatever enormous amount of calorie and fat was in regular mayonnaise. So, uh, big deal. Okay. And uh, then, just to, to, to point to a risk factor you probably don't think about, but one that uh, I'm concerned about and some others are, the rise of air pollution globally, contributing, of course, to lung disease, we think to heart disease. Interesting work going on suggesting that 
some of the components in the pollution mix may contribute to uh, obesity. We actually have a whole center now for research on this within uh, my department. So there's other factors that we need to think about that require big solutions, global solutions, uh, that are causing uh, disease. I show the picture of Derek Yak, a friend, because uh, Derek represents, I think, a person who took on the interesting challenge of whether you can go from the public health sector to the industrial sector and make a difference. Derek moved from WHO, where he was the first director of the Tobacco-Free Initiative, to PepsiCo as senior vice president for global health. And, you know, I think we will have to learn whether such partnerships, placements, can work. Derek has moved on to other things, and I'm not sure we know yet whether this experiment worked. There was an effort while he was there to have perhaps healthier products and one that seemed not to work so well on the profit side. And then some of the same tactics repeating themselves. Questioning of the science. So this is a pair of reviews, meta-analyses, bringing the evidence together. One saying that salt is not a problem. Dietary sodium restriction, take it with a grain of salt. And then another one saying, of course, that salt is a problem. And the duels over the science are ongoing and there to create doubt, which has been a uh, critical uh, tactic uh, on the industry side. Uh, in terms of approaches from tobacco, we learned the importance of creating networks. This is the Framework Convention Alliance, which uh, worked on the successful passage of the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control and continues to work on its uh, implementation. But now we have the NCD Alliance, in part an offspring of the Framework uh, Convention Alliance, bringing again together the global movement uh, to address non-communicable diseases. This is from the uh, recent Lancet article that some of you may have seen on global health uh, governance. It is addressing here uh, the UN and its multi-stakeholder platform as it thinks about uh, NCDs. The only point I want to make is there are an awful lot of circles on here and uh, an awful lot of people involved and groups and parties, including essentially all of us because we're all in the end uh, stakeholders in this. So it's not going to be easy, this uh, taking on of uh, NCDs. So let me turn a little bit to uh, lessons, uh, lessons learned. A snake has many skins. And I guess after so many years of working on the tobacco story, I'm amazed that it just keeps going. And I'm optimistic. And then along comes something that, as a friend has said, is disruptive, electronic cigarettes. We don't really know yet about their role in harm reduction and what the benefits may be for public health. But a new uh, challenge. We have to eat, but we don't have to smoke. These are profound principles, by the way. Um, <laughs> And my only point being, again, we do have to eat, and I think it's probably okay to enjoy a French fry every now and then, but not every lunchtime. And, and again, I think this is critical. Uh, the NCD epidemics start easily. They've been hard to recognize and very hard to end. And I think we really have to uh, be on uh, the attack. 
There's only one tobacco industry, and that has made the tobacco story easy. But there are many people who bring us food, alcohol. There are many reasons that we're not active enough that are embedded in our societies. So this is a further challenge. The tobacco industry is not the food industry. And I think the tobacco industry stands by itself as a pariah for its uh, activities. Uh, and the strategies of the tobacco industry have spread. And uh, that's uh, unfortunately true. So lessons learned. I wrote a paper with my colleague Heather uh, Whipley that we published in Tobacco Control a few years ago. And we highlighted the HIV AIDS epidemic, the tobacco epidemic, and the non-communicable disease epidemic. And I think the table, which you may be able to see, makes, makes a point. A single infectious disease agent, known modes of transmission, now therapy. Cigarettes, tobacco, a few countries, a few companies rather, a single product roughly, something we know about. And then the non-communicable diseases with this very complex uh, environment of, uh, that drives the epidemic. So this is going to be a challenge. And I have to say, you'll find lots of things written. Many of us are trying to do things. We have to, uh, but we have a lot of work uh, to do. Okay, I've resisted all this tacky UC, USC stuff <laughs> till now. <laughs> So I actually want to thank you. We actually had been using this uh, fight on for global health. I did very poorly in my animation here. But uh, thank you for inviting a Trojan uh, into the UC uh, territory here. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.